Thank you, Timian Akhtar, and thank you, David Jackson. All we will be introducing the both of you shortly. We are very much appreciative of your time. This is David McHale of the United Nations Capital Development Fund, and we are here today to dedicate our entire podcast format uh, to providing insight, guidance, and information uh, on the COVID-19 virus, specifically as it relates to the mission, uh, to the innovation, and to the expertise of the United Nations Capital Development Fund. And one of those specific pillars that really embodies our mission, our expertise, and our innovation is local government finance. And so what we are doing today is we are recording a podcast that will actually be aired on both UNCDF podcasts, on our Capital Musings podcast and on our Capital Lowcast podcast, uh, so that we can reach the broadest uh, group of people to, again, share the value add that we can bring our experience and how we are seeing the, how we are seeing the value that we can bring in the context um, of the COVID-19 pandemic. And in particular, um, with this conversation, we are going to focus on what can be done in the immediate, in, in not months and years down the road, but in the days and the weeks um, that can be done from the standpoint of a local government finance response to COVID-19. And I couldn't have two better people to have that conversation with than David Jackson and Tamina Akhtar, the director and the deputy director, respectively, of our local development finance practice with the United Nations Capital Development Fund. David and Tamina, thank you so much for giving us the time today. Well, thank you very much, uh, David. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, David. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Tamina. Thank you, David. So, I think when, when we talk about the COVID-19 pandemic, obviously we see it in the context of a, of, of a public health crisis, but what we've seen are also these tremendous uh, impacts that it has on uh, not I mean, civil society, local, uh, local and global economies, things of governance, things of that nature. Uh, but maybe one of the more important aspects of, of, the, of the pandemic that we're, that we're overlooking is, is the frontline actors, and not just healthcare workers, as critically important as they are, but local governments, specifically because they are, they are the drivers of service delivery on any given day, much less in a crisis situation. So David, I'm gonna start with you because I think it's an important place to start. Just describing the importance of local governments, specifically as the frontline actors in the context of COVID-19. Well, thank you so much indeed, um, David McCall. And I, I believe that local governments are, in fact, the frontline actors uh, uh, for COVID-19. There's a phenomenon known as the rolling apex, which is showing already, if you look at the data, that even within countries, uh, the way in which COVID-19 is spreading and the height of the curve, so to speak, of infections and the rate at which the, those infections are being brought down now in places like Italy and uh, Spain and China, of course, has a lot to do with the success or otherwise 
of the local governments in mobilizing uh, and acting on the response. Mm -hmm. Of course, local governments are the interface between the citizen and the state. And COVID-19 just brings this out. When one talks about social distancing, when one talks about public transport, when one talks about um, the immediate uh, operation of basic health services, basic education services, when one talks about distribution of uh, masks and uh, hand sanitizers and things like that, local governments are where it's at. You know, one of the issues with COVID-19 to date is that ministries of health uh, are not always the best entities to actually deliver the kind of horizontal coordinated all of city or all of region or all of area response that is that, that required and we've seen that because in places where there is one ministry of health uh, some cities or some local government areas have responded a lot better than others so in fact the determining factor to the response is not the Ministry of Health, it's actually the way in which the local government has been able to mobilize itself and finance its uh, and operate on its response. And that's what we've put together in our local government finance COVID-19 guidance note, because it's really all about how local governments can mobilize the response and then how that, that can be financed. Uh, I mean, there's lots of concrete examples that can be uh, provided, but I think one of the most interesting is um, in a country, uh, Bangladesh, where the central government came to us and said, look, this thing is growing, it's expanding, uh, we need to do something about it. We know what needs to be done, but we have to have a way of getting this done across the country at speed, at scale. And we said, well, look at your existing institutions. In Bangladesh, there are 4,900 union parishads. Each union parishad has about 10 to 15,000 people in it. Uh, they are the basic level of local government, the basic unit, and they are fully capacitated to do things, use them. And uh, so we're now piloting a, a scheme as of last week where 72 union parishads are implementing a local government COVID-19 protocol that is already showing responses. So it's just about understanding that the solution is there before your very eyes, use it. And uh, countries now are going to need to capacitate their local governments and look at their local governments as part of their national survival plans in ways that they've never done before. I think that that's a fascinating point that you make because it, I, I think to the, the casual observer, it wouldn't occur to, I wouldn't, it wouldn't occur to him or her that, that, six, that success of a COVID-19 response is not entirely in the hands of a Ministry of Health, but actually is to a large degree in the hands of local government and by extension, the financing of the local government. I, I think that's an incredibly important point to make. And I think, Tamina, it segues into um, uh, an equally important question, which is uh, where we're, it forces us to not only look at the existing strengths of, of some local governments, uh, that enable them to tackle COVID-19 in as effective a way as possible. But we really have to assess the legacy challenges that local governments face and how those traditional challenges are adversely impacting their ability to respond to local, uh, to, sorry, to COVID-19. So what are, the, what are the traditional challenges that are now incredibly relevant in terms of hindering a given local government's ability to respond to the pandemic? 
So David, if we look at what the traditional challenges are related to local government finance, um, it is really that the sources of finance are very limited for most local governments around the world, particularly mm -hmm. in developing countries. Mm. And this results not only from the fact that in many countries, many developing countries, there is no constitutional right to um, a part of the budget, part of the finance allocated to local governments. Mm -hmm. um, where this exists, it may be very, very small, a minuscule amount, a few percentage points, um, which is inadequate for local governments. Um, and the money that goes to local governments, a large part of that is used by them to pay for salaries of municipal staff. Mm -hmm. So there is very little funding as such for flexible spending by local governments that would enable them to be able to use those resources in order to address immediate needs um, in a flexible way, um, particularly in an emergency situation. So that really ties their hands. At the same time, you have citizens looking to local governments for support and for services, and you have a huge burden of the costs at the local level sort of uh, being uh, shouldered by local governments in terms of, um, you know, the closures and how it affects uh, citizens and, um, you know, the, the additional management and oversight that is needed in such situations to respond. So they are um, uh, doubly affected by that. The second issue here is that in terms of sort of the other sources of funding, the own source revenues, um, local governments are not as able in developing countries to raise their own revenues as they are in many developed countries. So that means that in terms of the taxation, even if they are collecting taxation, they may not be able to be part of that for local projects. Um, and they, they are not able in most countries, most developing countries of the world to borrow money for their uh, local development projects. Mm -hmm. So that also decreases the flexibility that they have. And in a situation such as a pandemic where um, certain local governments may be uh, very much affected, all of this becomes uh, even more challenging. Uh, even in New York and in states in the US, we're seeing um, the demands for emergency funding from central government and the, and the degree to which you know, this um, uh, requires additional uh, resources beyond the budgets that these states have available. So the same thing would then be true in developing countries where uh, such situations will also be unfolding and will require them to be on the front lines. Um, so uh, I think we see that. Right, no, you're, it's, it's, it's a great point. Um, but at, the, at, at least if you're a, a local government in, in, a, in a developed market, you're more likely to have the tools to acquire uh, financing, whether it's being able to access credit markets or things of that nature. So that's, it's a, a, I, so obviously the, the challenges are that much greater uh, in localities in developing, in developing countries and LDCs. It's, 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 a, it's, it's, an, it's an excellent point. I'd love to stick with you, Tamina, um, on and just a, a connected question, because when we talk about um, just traditionally the sphere of local governments and local, local government finance, we also talk about its in the intersection with women's economic empowerment are you seeing a gender dimension as it relates to local governments, local government finance and COVID-19? Absolutely, David. Um, this is very worrying actually, because huh. um, in general, in, uh, in many developing countries, uh, you know, we see that local governments have a huge role to play in terms of leadership on women's economic empowerment. 
And this is not just kind of support to businesses or to individual women. This really has to do with infrastructure services and uh, the ability of the city to really address needs of women and to really support in overcoming the obstacles that they may face. So that would be things like transportation, education, um, you know, service training for uh, employment, um, safety, security, street lighting, all of those sorts of things should be at the forefront of concern of local governments um, in terms of creating really inclusive cities. And where this doesn't exist, um, it also puts women at a greater disadvantage in situations of crisis as in this COVID-19 uh, outbreak and the response to it. So, you know, some examples that I can give you, you know, women, for example, um, UN Women has said that 70% of workers in health and social sectors are women. So how does something like this affect them as healthcare workers, as social uh, workers and how does this affect them in terms of the unpaid care work that according to some estimates women do three times as much of so you know all of this is coming on top of um, you know just the regular situation where they may be disadvantaged anyway also I think another aspect is that women are also disproportionately in the informal economy so they may have, they may be running informal businesses, um, they may have other types of informal work. Um, and this is not, of course, just women, it affects all informal economy workers, but the majority of them are often women, that they have no safety nets, they may not have health care, they may not have access to um, any kind of, um, you know, unemployment, or um, be able to access bailouts. So it, um, you know, it is likely to even uh, push them further behind. Um, and, um, you know, we need to really concern, I think cities need to concern themselves with women in low pay, secure informal jobs and look at ways in which safety nets can be provided, perhaps some sort of support for women owned businesses, or other types of, uh, you know, measures that help to correct uh, the disparities and support women. And lastly, I think there's another issue also that needs to be studied more, which is regarding the kind of increase in violence reported um, uh, against women. Uh, often now everyone is working from home, um, so that you know pushes issues um, into the home front. Also women, many women work and run their businesses from home, so how does it affect them in that respect as well? So I think we need to be carefully looking at this, not to just forget about gender within this crisis, but to really um, make it an integral part of our response. Oh, what a, thank you for, thank you for such a, making a really important point. Um, um, David, I want to come back to you before, uh, and, and as you acknowledged uh, at, the, at the top, um, you, uh, the, your practice uh, recently published a technical guidance note, um, and, and in the context of the next question, I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about the utility of the note, and then we'll get into it a, a little bit further. Um, and we and that note is now available, by the way, uh, on our website, uncdf.org. Um, so you can access that note and read this technical guidance note, which is intended to provide guidance to local governments, uh, again, on what can be done in days and weeks, not months. It's, 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 a, it's, it's an all, it's kind of a, it's a generic all-inclusive document that can be applied to different local governments in different situations. David, I'll let you talk more about that. But I'd also love for you to, to, to help us just take a step back and just give us a brief primer on the main means of 
the, the three means of financing that you lay out in the note in terms of intergovernmental fiscal transfers, own source revenue, and subnational borrowing. Because those are critical to kind of piecing together the financing of the COVID solutions as you lay out in your guidance note. So thank you so much indeed, David. Uh, absolutely right. Th th those are the three pieces of the jigsaw. And uh, the note will be updated weekly and complemented by a blog, uh, which will sh be updated daily to show how you know, local governments are responding in terms of their finance. So yes, uh, all local governments worldwide, whether you're talking about New York City or whether you're talking about a very small village uh, in, a, in, a, in a remote rural area, there are three main sources of income. Uh, one is what's known as own source revenues, which are the taxes and fees that local governments collect according to their revenue assignments, which is the, uh, the, what they're allowed to, to collect by, by central government. The second is what's known as intergovernmental fiscal transfers. And these are the uh, resources that are shared with them uh, by central government uh, through uh, central government uh, transfers of, or returns, if you like, of taxes back down to local governments for returns of fiscal revenue. And the third is subnational borrowing. So even uh, it's often very limited, the borrowing, but there's uh, even in relatively small local governments, there can be minimal amounts that they can sometimes borrow in certain circumstances for certain types of projects that are ring fenced and separated off or, uh, from, from the rest of their, 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 their normal activities. Now, I think what, there's a couple of points that are really important to emphasize here. So the firstly, uh, when it comes to the intergovernmental fiscal transfers, these are the major source of local government finance in almost all countries, if not all countries. And um, even in the most wealthiest countries in the world, local governments receive transfers from central government. Now, when you talk to a minister of finance, they may, they may see this as giving the money away. Uh, if only we didn't have to make these transfers down to local governments. But in fact, the Ministry of Finance is simply an office sitting somewhere in a capital city. The money that the Ministry of Finance uh, plays with was generated across the national territory uh, in cities and, and rural local governments, whether it's um, royalties from mining, whether it's uh, import uh, duties connected with agriculture, whether it's income tax, uh, whether it's land tax, whatever source of income the uh, central government has, that income has come from somewhere within the national territory. And effectively, an intergovernmental fiscal transfer is a form of redistribution, if you like, return of the income that has been generated across the territory back into the territory that has generated that income in the first place. Sure. Unfortunately, not, not everybody sees it like that, but that is in fact what it is. Right. Uh, and uh, all local governments, as I mentioned, whether it's uh, New York City or London, or whether it's a very small rural local government, a significant amount of their income is this intergovernmental fiscal transfer, uh, partly because they're not allowed to levy many taxes, central government levies the taxes, and then central government redistributes those, 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 those taxes. So that is a key element, and I'll come on to the COVID relationship in a moment. A second key element of local government revenue is their own source revenues. So these are the most flexible source of financing, and these are local taxes 
that local and fees that local governments collect. They are often property taxes, they can be car parking taxes, they can be fees from assets that they uh, manage or revenues from assets that they manage, property that they rent out. There's a variety of ways in which own source revenues can be collected. And of course, in many places, sometimes the central government collects that and then redistributes it according to a certain formula. Uh, or the local government collects a tax and sends some of it up to central government and keeps some of it for itself. So that's very flexible. And, and here it depends on leadership. Uh, a very famous study was done um, on Brazil, cross-comparing thousands of local governments uh, and seeing that they're showing that in fact the variation in the imagination and creativity that they used to collect their own source revenues is remarkable and really you need a leadership to be able to maximize your own source revenues and to get your citizens to understand that paying these fees and taxes is actually of benefit to them because they get better services from them. Now, what happens when you have COVID-19? So social distancing, work from home and lockdowns are devastating the retail and transport sectors. Mm -hmm. And this deprives local government of huge tax revenues. Right. Rising unemployment, is reducing rent and property tax payments, and the overall reduced economic activity is reducing business tax and fee receipts. And of course, they're being asked to give tax breaks to everybody to help them stay afloat, and, and they do need to do that. But, but the function that local governments need to perform in order to manage the COVID um, response also requires money. They need staff, they need vehicles, they need hand sanitizers, they need to make sure that the, 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 there's clean water uh, washing. What a lot of governments are asking us to do uh, is to help organize their marketplaces and the places where people buy and sell vegetables and meat in such a way that social distancing can take place and that san sanitary conditions can be in place. In Laos, uh, 700,000 migrants have just come back from Thailand because the economy of Thailand is closing down right. and the local governments are being asked to enforce the quarantine for these 700,000 people. With what money? So that's where it's going to be very important in this moment that as far as possible, local governments, whilst they manage to hold on to their own source revenue and are able to look for the areas of economic activity that will increase due to this COVID. It's not everything's going to decrease and make sure they're still taxing them. So they have some flexible money. Now, when it comes to intergovernmental fiscal transfers, the money that they receive from uh, central government, a lot of this is in capital, capital grants, and this is for investments. And as we're talking about days and weeks, not months and years, the, there's no time for the investment cycle to kick in. So one important thing that central governments can do is to, is to temporarily move the um, intergovernmental fiscal transfers more into the recurrent the, uh, grant more, uh, 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 um, operations and allow local governments to use this money for a mixture of investments in capital expenditure and also recurrent expenditure. They need to raise the limits that local governments can spend and they need to allow for environment between budget headings so that local governments can pool together 
their um, own source revenues and the intergovernmental fiscal transfers on these uh, response plans. And what we're seeing that the response plans, the more that they are horizontally, if you like, organized between different government agencies, the more effective they can be. So there are also what are called conditional grants from central government, which go to specific sectors like education, health, etc. But these tend to be not enough. So you might have the local department of health getting 70% of what it needs for a COVID response from central government and asking the mayor or the local government to chip in with that additional 30%. Now that additional 30% can only come from the discretionary resources that the local government has at its disposal, be they intergovernmental fiscal transfers or be its own source revenue. So uh, uh, when a local government is effective, it uses its intergovernmental fiscal transfers and its own source revenue, and it pools that and then spreads that across the different responses that are required to, uh, to implement the COVID-19 protocol uh, and, and enforce things like social distancing, make sure that masks are distributed, make sure that the health authority has enough, make sure that schools can close, you can have home homeschooling, uh, sanitary conditions, etc, etc. So it's highly complex to talk about it, but in fact the only people that actually know how to do this are those that are on the ground. This cannot be micromanaged, you have to let those on the ground deal with it. Now, when it comes to the subnational borrowing, here uh, it, it's really for the financial sector to recognise that any subnational borrowing for local governments has to be forgiven for the time being. Uh, please don't go collecting debts from them. Uh, they have better things to do, and it's actually for the health of everybody that they are allowed to get on with what they need to do uh, whilst they uh, can. And uh, finally, I think that the, the most important piece of advice for local governments is at all times, maximize your liquidity. Be very careful. Do not run out of cash. And uh, ministries of finance, ministries of local government are going to have to help their local governments uh, keep that liquidity they're always going to need something in their pockets. Uh, it's a tricky job, but it's what local government finance officers are used to doing all the time anyway, because as Tamina just said, uh, local governments are used to performing miracles with very small amounts of resources. I'll stop there. Well, and, and, and thank you for that. And Tamina, I, I, I'd love for you to build on that. And, and to be honest with you, David, you've already, you, you jumped well into uh, the, 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 the follow, you know, the, the following questions, which related to, um, we've laid out the problem. So now, and clearly that there's, there, there's clear capacity uh, needs that a, a responsible or COVID-19 response requires. Uh, local governments are positioned to do it because of the nature of their their uh, their nature as a service delivery provider, but finance is the question. And you've already laid out a number of options that are reflected in this note of what local finance options there are that can be deployed in order to support COVID-19 responses at the local level. Tamina, I'd love for you to build on that. Thank you. Thank you, David. So um, just to build on what David said, um, you know, looking specifically at the, the COVID um, response uh, situation, um, there's also, you know, the need for greater partnerships with philanthropic organizations um, in this uh, kind of unprecedented situation that local governments may find themselves in. 
And here, the use of local emergency funds, for example, to mobilize such philanthropic finance that you know, can be used by local governments with their own governance arrangements and expenditure procedures that can provide a flexible and expedient way of um, you know, utilizing that funding is really needed. And also um, another thing that I would like to add, you know, in our regular work, we are also working with local governments to um, support public-private partnerships. And these are sometimes really instrumental for bringing the funding that the private sector has and connecting it with uh, sort of public needs in a way that meets social services and social needs um, in regular context. And there is certainly a huge and urgent need for that to happen also in the post-COVID uh, context uh, for um, cities and uh, subnational regions that may be suffering from it. So here, you know, logistic issues, food supply, um, all sorts of things that, you know, could be done in partnership with um, private sector need to also be more effectively regulated. So thank you for that. Um, I'd love to, Tamina, I'd love to, to, to stick with you to just ask a follow-up question. And then David, if you could build uh, from Tamina's points. It, you know, it wasn't that long ago that our focus, not just as an organization, but the UN system as a whole, was really about the decade of implementation to achieve the SDGs. Um, and how we were looking at the last 10 years to reach the goal of achieving the SDGs by 2030, and in particular, ensuring that we're, that we're delivering sustainable development to the last mile uh, to, to deliver on the promise of the SDGs to leave no one behind. Uh, now we're in the new reality um, where we are obviously focusing on tackling a uh, this, this a pandemic of historic proportions. But to Tamina's point early on um, in, 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 in the context of gender, and I think it probably applies to all of the sustainable development agenda, um, we we would be remiss or we would not be well served if we put the SDGs permanently on the side or completely took our focus away from it. So Tamina, I'd love to ask you just your general thoughts on how you envision, and this is really in a, in a, in a, in a near worst case scenario, um, where local government, if local governments are not empowered and supported, to address COVID-19, what does that mean in terms of completing and achieving the SDGs uh, specifically in the LDCs? Thank you, David. So I think, um, you know, we are seeing, um, you know, David Jackson started by talking a little bit about uh, the different uh, growth charts that we're seeing of how the, the pandemic is um, increasing or how it is being brought under control. Uh, in different regions. And um, the role of local governments has been really key in doing this, in bringing that curve down. And that is really the most urgent need because the more it spreads, the more difficult it becomes to control and the greater the economic repercussions of all of this. So um, we need to be able to support local governments in least developed countries to be able to take action, to be able to impose or to um, facilitate um, uh, curfews or um, you know, uh, to be able to support social distancing uh, while keeping the economy running on all essential services that are needed uh, for this, for this response to be effective. 
um, they need to have hospitals running, they need to have, um, you know, um, security maintained, um, food systems, you know, all the, the services that are deemed as essential services need to be uh, still continuing on. Um, so I think the more we can do to minimize the damage, minimize the spread and catch this early uh, is really important. So I think testing is a really important, is going to be a really important part of this. And then the relationship between the health agencies and local governments is something that is really important too, because of course, traditionally health and education are seen as um, sort of areas where the central government has a lot to say. Um, and uh, that may, that is true of regulating policy, but in terms of how is it managed, how do we get children to work from home, how do, or, or to uh, study from home, how do we impose curfews, how do we get kind of the logistics of having the supplies, the testing, and all of that done at the local level. Again, you need your local government to be in the forefront, uh, taking decisions uh, and, and uh, making the best choices for uh, the people there. So I think that is really crucial. So they need support, they need financing, they need flexible funding. Uh, we're looking at things like um, operational expenditure block grants. We're looking at ways of using the intergovernmental fiscal transfer systems to provide some emergency funding for these sorts of actions by local governments. Um, and I think the earlier this gets to them, the, the, the better it is for the response. Um, because, um, you know, the danger here is really that a prolonged pandemic can have devastating impacts on, um, on people and particularly on those that are most vulnerable in terms of those that are either aged or that have health considerations. Also, it can really um, exacerbate the, the issues in terms of hunger, uh, mm -hmm. nutritional insecurity, um, and also you know, the, the position of women and children in particular. So we don't want to lose the gains on those SDGs that have been very, um, that have been achieved with a lot of effort and hard work with something like this, um, you know, just spilling out of control. So I think quick action, quick delivery of assistance and uh, empowering local governments to take the actions. Uh, and also the learning. I think there is a lot of potential for learning lessons from different regions. The South-South exchange, the city-to-city -city exchange, that needs to be happening um, uh, among these regions that are most affected. David, did you want to build on that? Absolutely. So I think a couple of things. I'm, I'm really happy that Tamina mentioned testing. That may be something we didn't talk about enough earlier. Test, 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 as the World Health Organization says. And uh, local governments can certainly accelerate the implementation of testing protocols. Also, of course, the, uh, the mayor to mayor, local government, local government exchanges that we've all been part of now are very deep and, and rich. Uh, less of the politicking you see when presidents and prime ministers talk between themselves or there's less of that kind of um, you know, national status uh, around and it's much more about you know, practical problem solving. But I, I think that what I really would like to, to add and uh, you know, to, to, to what Tamina mentioned is, uh, a, 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 in a sense, Tamina alluded to this, that we now know who the essential workers are. You asked about uh, the SDGs, um, you know, what happens uh, to them. Uh, and I think that uh, it's so interesting to see now, you know, the essential workers, are the people who are often uh, the most ignored in society, the people who keep the cities moving, the people who we need to keep our lives running are, are the essential workers, essentially. And 
if out of this crisis can come a reevaluation of who are the essential uh, players in society and um, that uh, and, and, a, and a rethinking about how to organize resources around them that could be a way of actually making sure that the sustainable development goals are are not lost uh, at all and it, it's it's also uh, noticeable that um, not only do we find out who the essential workers are, but we're seeing the, the, the differences in many cities between uh, those that are able to self-isolate, quarantine, work from home with a laptop, and those that just are not able to do that, um, you know, irrespective that they may want to. And so I think that also raises an important issue uh, with regard to how we're going to organize society in the future. I mean, that's not something really for this podcast, but uh, it has really made us look at ourselves in the mirror, I think, as a world, and uh, showed us really to be lacking in, 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 in some ways, that we're not able to deal with this kind of pandemic uh, the way that we would like to be able to deal with this. And I hope that we learn a lot from that. And if we do learn from that, that will be a way to really accelerate the um, sustainable development goals because it will mean really putting people first. And that may be something that comes out of this crisis. And uh, I think the local governments are already seeing that and feeling that uh, in their response. Uh, thank you. And I, and I hope the larger community, the larger uh, national and global community follows because you, the both of you as thought leaders have always uh, emphasized the importance of local governments and given the criticality of their importance uh, in terms of this challenge, um, yeah, maybe indeed it's a teachable moment to the world about uh, how essential local governments are as well as everyone else now who we see truly as the essential personnel in our societies. I. And I, I think to the both of you, I, I really, uh, I can't think of a better way to, to, to end the conversation. Uh, these are not easy times and there are no easy answers, but I think to give your time to provide some context and some, some thoughtful insights and guidance that uh, local governments can deploy right now uh, is, uh, you, uh, you can't estimate the importance of it. So thank you so much for your service. Um, and um, please, in the future, uh, as you're developing more and more guidance, uh, we will do everything we can uh, to be a platform uh, for your best thoughts and practices. But stay safe, and thank you for your time, uh, David Jackson and Tamina Akhtar. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, David. I really appreciate uh, the conversation, and have a really good evening. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, David. Thank you.